Today, we are going to address the last mark of the profile of maturing believers. Now, let me just say the following. Just because it is the last mark does not mean that it's the least important. And just because it's the last mark of a profile of a maturing believer does not mean that we reach maturity. I pray that God uses this series of messages that we have gone over for the last few months to challenge us to grow in our personal walk with Jesus. In this entire series, we have been looking at three distinct aspects of believers, followers of Christ, who are on their path to maturity. We've been asking the question, how do you know if you are growing as a believer? Three major distinctions, three major areas in our communion with God, in our community with other believers, and in our commission to the world. Each of these areas has four or six sermons, and today we are finishing the, the final section of what it means to be commissioned to the world. Now, the New Testament gives very clear pictures of believers as being sent out, as being commissioned to the world. Pictures like a light before the nations, like being a salt of the earth, like being ambassadors who take a message, and many other pictures like that. One thing is very clear and sure from Scripture is that Scripture assumes that if you are a follower of Christ, you're also commissioned. If you are a follower of Christ, you're also commissioned. Actually, to follow Jesus means to be sent by Him. And in our Commission to the World sermons, we have been looking at three marks. We have looked at, the bur at having a burden for the lost, at proclaiming the gospel clearly and regularly, and at making disciples of all nations. And today we reach the final mark, a fourth mark, and that is perceive and respond to needs in light of the gospel. Perceive and respond to needs in light of the gospel. Now this message is not going to be about giving financial resources. It goes way deeper than that. This message also is not about doing ministry based on people's felt needs. It goes way deeper than that. In order to understand what does it mean to perceive and respond to needs in light of the gospel, I encourage you to open scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 17. We'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 34. The book of Acts, chapter 17, we'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to verse 34. The reading of God's Word this morning is from the NIV version. The Word of the Lord says the following. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, 
he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And a side note, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did not do this so that men, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As one of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Amaris, and a number of others. Amen. This was the word of the Lord. Let's bow our heads in prayer to ask him for his assistance. Lord, as we stand before your word, we confess that we need your spirit to guide us in all truth. Father, as I proclaim this word, I confess that I cannot do it faithfully apart from your divine assistance. So assist us, O Holy Spirit, and speak to us, O Lord, through the proclamation of your word and for the sake of your glory. Amen. Well, the text we just read is 
one of the three sermons that Paul preached in the book of Acts. It is the longest sermon that is preaching the entire New Testament to an audience that has no idea about the revelation of God. In this passage, we have Paul's sermon given to the Athenians on Mars Hills. Now, some interpreters of this sermon have considered this passage uh, positively as an example of how we should approach others, how we should proclaim the gospel to those who do not know Jesus, to those who do not know of God's revelation. So some view it as a positive example. Others view it as a negative example of how not to preach the gospel. Now, those who interpret it negatively usually have the following reasons. Uh, first of all, it seems that in this passage, Paul was not able to get many converts. And at the end of his trip to, in Athens, uh, there seems to be no evidence that a church was planted, as was the case in many other places. So they say, this must have been a failure on Paul's side. Others say, well, it seems to me that in Paul's preaching, he mentioned nowhere about the cross of Jesus. So they say, this message must not have been very faithful to the gospel. Alongside with that, they say, it seems that when Paul got to Corinth, which was the next stop after Athens, if you look at chapter, eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, from, Corinth, from Athens he went to Corinth. When he got to Corinth, it seems that he might have changed his preaching strategy. Because in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, namely from Athens, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So some of are of this opinion that the sermon in Acts 17 is really not a good example of how to preach the gospel. That's one view. I am unconvinced by that one view for the following reasons. First of all, small results do not necessarily imply that the evangelist failed. Just as big results do not imply that the evangelist succeeded. Not necessarily. Number two, even though Paul did not clearly talk about the cross, or at least we don't have a record of him mentioning the cross here, we know for sure Paul talked longer than two minutes of the sermon. We know that for sure. This is just a summary of his big points. But even though Paul may have not explicitly taught the cross of Christ, it's very clear that in his message, Paul gives a picture of the gospel and of the fullness of the gospel by talking about God, the creator, by talking about God, who is the judge, by talking about the ignorance of men and their ignorance of God and the fact that God will bring all men to judgment, by talking about Christ, the one whom God raised from the dead, and by giving an invitation for people to repent. All these are 
elements that need to be part of any gospel presentation. And Paul clearly had it here in Athens. So I do think that Paul did preach the gospel in Athens. But there's a third reason why I think Paul was faithful in preaching the gospel. It's because both in Athens and in Corinth, Paul did challenge his audience with the gospel of Christ. It was a challenging message. It did not just encourage them in their being. It was not just one of those messages that made them feel good. In Corinth, it was very clear. We heard the passage read earlier in the, in the, in the service. And now in, in Acts 17, Paul clearly called people to repent. So I think that we have something to learn from Paul as he preached this sermon. How do we preach the gospel? How do we proclaim the gospel to those who may have not heard about Christ? To those who may have not made any commitment to Christ? I think Paul gives us a great example of how to be commissioned to the world. And if there's one point, if there's only one thing that you could take away from the sermon... It would be the following. While the gospel is the same in every instance, talking about the gospel may be different in every circumstance. Let me repeat that. If you hear, if you hear nothing else today but this sentence, it is this. While the gospel is the same in every situation, talking about the gospel is different in every circumstance. In other words, the gospel and proclaiming the gospel is not a cookie-cutter task. It is not like you take the blueprint and just apply it here and there without knowing how that gospel applies to every different situation and every different context. One message today, while the gospel is the same, talking about the gospel is different in every circumstance. This morning, we will look the first part of the message at how to proclaim the gospel without making it a cookie cutter. And second, in the second part of the message, we'll be talking about why our gospel presentation ought to be in such a way that it does not feel like a cookie cutter. So let's begin with, with asking the question, how? How do we proclaim the gospel so that it does not feel like a cookie cutter task? From Paul, we learn two things that he did very, very well. First, he perceived the needs of others. He perceived the needs of others. Now, when we talk about perceiving people's needs and the, the needs of those around us, it is very easy to, to, to think only of, of poverty or think only of, of financial needs or think only of emotional needs. Those, those needs are, are more easily identified. But what do you do when you have to deal with people who seem to have it pretty well. How are you to approach people in situations where things are successful and it appears that people have no needs? Apparently, this was a context that Paul encountered in Athens. Look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Athens used to be a place of Greek piety, and it continued to have this reputation in Paul's day. It was full of idols. 
And Paul observed, look at verse 22, that these men were in every way very religious. They had it all together. They had a very sophisticated system of worship. As a matter of fact, to, to understand how sophisticated they were, the Apostle Paul noticed that they had gods and statues for all kinds of idols. And in verse 23, he says, As I walked around and looked very carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown god. In other words, these Athenians wanted to make sure they didn't miss any of the gods. So they built a statue to an unknown God. Now all this is possible for Paul to learn and realize because he was interested to learn what was going on in the city. As a matter of fact, we know verse 23, Paul says that he looked around very carefully. That was his attitude. That was his demeanor. That's what he did. In this description of what Paul did, we learn a key principle about spreading the gospel, about being commissioned to the world. And here's the principle. Perceive the needs of those around you. Perceive their needs. What are they worshiping? I am not asking you to find out what church they go to. but I'm asking you to find out what are they worshiping. I'm not asking you to find out which denomination, in which denomination they have their membership role. I'm asking you to find out what are they worshiping. What is most important in their lives? What are they preoccupied with? Some may be worshiping their careers. Others may be worshiping money. Others, especially here in Austin, might be worshiping the idol of being weird. We love newness. We love unconventionality. We love to be against the grain. We love to be different than all of Texas. That's an idol dwellers in Austin worship. Others worship sex, money, drugs, or even their families. Others would even worship their denomination. Find out people's needs. What is their context? Now, Sometimes just observing carefully, you can get a picture of what they worship. Other times it helps to ask some questions. And by the way, learn the art of asking questions that open the door for the other person to talk. When we have conversations with people, we usually think that the best conversations are those in which we do most of the talking. And that is false. You don't need to be a Christian to know this. Ask any salesman. If you get the other person to talk, you're a good salesman. Now, all I'm saying here is the following. 
perceive the needs of others. Ask them questions that open up the other person to know what is their framework, what is their thinking, what do they value, what do they treasure. Point is, as much as you can, make it a priority to perceive the needs around you. And do it, just like Paul, very carefully. Be genuinely interested in finding out the other person's story. So that's the first thing that Paul did. He perceived the needs of others. He perceived the needs of Athens. But then the second thing he did was he responded to their needs in light of the gospel. He responded to their needs in light of the gospel. Now, because Paul perceived and understood the needs of the Athenians, he was able to respond and engage their situation more directly. Because he found the statue of an unknown God, in verse 23 he says, Now I am going to proclaim to you that which you worship as an unknown God. I mean, that was a a brilliant turning point. How could he do that? Because he learned that about them. And because he knew those needs, because he knew where they were struggling and where they were, they, where they were in their life, what they were worshiping, he could really address those issues directly. What this means for us is that when we think about the gospel, we need to start asking questions in our minds. How does that gospel address an issue, an area of the person I'm talking to. Paul, if we look further in in verse 28, Paul was even able to quote some ideas from the Greek poets. He says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And this tells us that Paul was aware not only of what they were worshiping, but he was also aware of their thinking patterns, of their heritage of their framework of thinking. He knew something about them, not only superficially, but deeply in the way they thought. So when he talks to them, when he presents a gospel to them, he's got to build off of those things. Now, some people think that if we pay too much attention to the context of where people are, we might compromise the gospel. Let's see what Paul does. Before he he engages in the challenge that the gospel brings to them, he builds a positive message. He builds bridges with them in a common language that he can address them in common ideology. Now, what does this mean for us? Some believers have acquired such a Christianized vocabulary that non-believers have a hard time understanding our speech. And I have to tell you, I have to guard against that tendency often. Now, why do we acquire this change of language? Part of it is normal because Our mind is being transformed. We learn new truths. We learn new concepts. We learn about a God who has transformed us, redeemed us, blessed us. And sometimes we just cannot help but use those big words that non-believers don't understand. So part of it is, is understandable. 
But I wonder if one of the reasons why our language is so specific and so Christianized is because we stopped hanging out with lost people. And we just don't talk to them. We don't really engage with them much. Outside of work, we don't really talk to them and think about how and hear how they think and what bothers them and what worries them. There's a sense in which we may have lost touch with what it felt to be lost. It's been a, a while since we came to Christ, and lately all our friends are Christians. We just don't hang out with non-believers. So we don't know what's on their hearts. We don't know what bothers them, what, what they're interested in. And we stopped using their language. Now again, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we need to not see any change. We will see change. I think some of that change is normal. But so often, we only know how to talk in this Christianese language. And what we see in Paul here, an example of an ability to find that common pattern, that common vocabulary, not only in the words he uses, but even in the concepts, even in the common heritage of God's universal grace. There are some things that God has done for all of us. Paul is able to do that, to use that, and build off of that and present the gospel. Now, when he comes to present the gospel, once he has built those bridges, we see that actually Paul is quite confronting. Because once he begins sharing the gospel, Paul is confronting their deeply held ideas about the gods, about the divine being. And here's the irony. Because he knew how to build bridges with their heritage, Paul was able to confront their ideologies more directly. Here's how he did it. Follow with me in a few verses. Verse 24, Paul says, It is wrong to try to limit the creator of everything in a building built by human hands. In verse 25, he says, It is wrong to think that God needs our service or our gifts, he who is the giver of life. These Athenians were trying to, to serve every kind of God and make sure they have a representation for every kind of God, including an unknown God. And Paul says, It is wrong to try to serve these gods as if they need our service. By the, by the way, that is so true in the church too. If you serve God because you think God needs your service, He doesn't need it. He invites you to join Him in a grand story of redemption. It's not a duty. It is a beautiful invitation of that redemption. So Paul says, no, God does not need our service. Verse 26, and by the way, a feature of ancient pagan religion was to identify gods with certain cities. And see what Paul says in verse 26. It is wrong to try to identify the God who created all the nations with any particular people, with any particular city. He's a God of all the nations, not just of Athens. And finally, verse 29, Paul says, it is wrong to think that the one who gives life to people can be made into a statue with no life and shaped by human hands. So clearly Paul was confronting their practice of making statues for all these gods. 
this is a message of confrontation. But the only way Paul knew how to do that and to confront their ideologies was because he learned those things from their context. He learned about their needs. He learned about their situation. You might say, well, Paul knew how to do that because he was an apostle. But I don't know if I know how to apply the gospel in different contexts. Here's a great challenge for us. Often believers are, who are seeking to proclaim the gospel find that the most difficult thing to say is not the plan of salvation. You know, those words that you memorize and sort of go quickly through a few verses and whew, you can't wait to be done. That's not the most difficult thing. Most believers who try to share the gospel find that the most difficult thing is how do you lead the conversation to that point where you share the gospel? When I talk to you, that seems to be the most difficult issue. How do you lead the conversation? How do you make the transition to the gospel? Now, there could be many reasons for that, for that difficulty, but I, I identified one that I'd like to bring to your attention. Is it possible that we find this difficult because we might have too small a view of the gospel? What do I mean by that? Is it possible that we think that the gospel is only for unbelievers? Is it possible that when we think of the gospel, we think only of those who are not yet followers of Christ, who need to hear it so they can become Christians? Do you think of the gospel as being the foundation and the fuel for your daily Christian walk? Do you think about the story of God's redemption, His creation, the fall, the redemption, and the promise of new life? Do you think of all those things as being the foundation of your daily walk with Christ? Or do you think the gospel is only for those who need to become Christians? This news about what Christ has done on my behalf, on our behalf, is supposed to affect every area of, of our lives, every aspect of our lives. It is supposed to affect how we think. It is supposed to, to affect what we hope. It is supposed to affect what we aspire to be and do. It is supposed to affect our dreams. Now, for most of us, when we think about why it's hard for us to preach the gospel, it might be because we have a hard time connecting the gospel to our daily lives. And therefore, it's hard for us when we talk about the gospel to others to connect it to their life. Is it possible that the reason why we have a hard time moving the conversation to leading and presenting the gospel is because we ourselves are living our life as if the gospel is only for non-believers. And if that's your view of the gospel today, I want to challenge you and say that it is a small view of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
is not only that news that helps us become Christians, it is that news that helps us be Christians every day of our Christian life. And unless we connect the, the news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to our daily life, unless we become a people who are cross-centered, who are gospel-centered in our daily living as Christians, we will just be proselytizing. We will just be using the, the gospel to win converts and not make disciples. What does this mean? There are many Christians, let me give you some examples. There are many Christians who live their life, their Christian life, following the commands of God, but they might not understand how the big story of the gospel and how God's commands are part of that big story. For example, let me take a, a pre-safe example. People say, or the Bible says, that, Christ, that Christians should not have sex outside of marriage. But we often fail to understand that command in light of the big story of the gospel. So when non-believers ask us, sometimes in a very derogatory way, so are you guys Christians, those that don't sleep around and are committed only to one person? We typically respond, yes, the Bible says so. Now, that is a true response. That is correct. But let me suggest to you a better way to understand that situation, that need that that non-believer had in his question about, about sex and marriage and all those issues, how we can respond to that in view of the gospel and connect the gospel to it. Rather than saying just, well, yes, the Bible says so, a better way to say it might be, yes, and here's why. Because God created us in his image. And he created man and woman to live in a unity and a bond of marriage and a covenant with each other. But early on in that creation, man rebelled against God. And because of that rebellion, we are triggering God's eternal judgment upon all of us. And one day, all of us will face that judgment. But God intervened. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us, to, to live a perfect life, to die on the cross so that he might pay the wrath that we triggered, that we deserved. And instead of receiving wrath, we received a new life that now is able to live out God's initial design for a man and a woman. Outside of that redemption, outside of that story, this does not make sense. But God invited us. He made that possible through Christ. He invited us to be restored back to him. And we Christians have been people who have responded to his invitation. And because of that, now we seek to live out our lives as an act of living out those ideals which God created. So when we don't sleep around, it's not just because the Bible says so. It's because it is an act of our worship to the God who has saved us. That's how you connect that question, and there's others. This is just an imperfect way. There's other ways, but that's how you take a life issue 
and say, how does the gospel connect to the fact that I'm not supposed to sleep around with, someone, with anyone that is not my wife or husband? It's not simply that the Bible says so. And by the way, here's the danger. If you were to respond in those situations with simply the answer, the Bible says so, you would just be communicating to the other person that Christianity is a set of rules. And that is false. You would be communicating to the other person that in order to be acceptable to God, you have to follow these rules. And unless you follow these rules, you're not acceptable to God. And when we say that, whether we actually use words or we don't, when we allow that to be implied, we are preaching a false gospel. The reason many of us have a hard time making those conversations to lead to a presentation of the gospel is because we have a hard time connecting the gospel to our own life issues. It's something like this. It's like learning a foreign language. When you learn a foreign language, you learn words and you learn grammar rules of a different language. And you start trying to match those things. And at first, it is brutal. It is hard. It takes so much time to think, okay, which word means that word? And how do I put those two words together? But the more you do it, the better you get at it. I could tell you numerous stories of how I've learned by trial and error how to be fluent in English. I used to say, uh, we, we, we sing the piano. Because in Romanian, the word for singing is the same word for playing. Sometimes you just cannot match those words. So in order to be fluent in a foreign language, you have to start thinking in that language. It's only when you start thinking in the categories of the language that you really start speaking fluently a foreign language. And it's the same way with the gospel. It's not simply about learning the mechanics and, sh and using it in a very mechanical way. It's about learning how to think through the gospel and in the categories of the gospel, every detail of our lives. It is not simply when you use the plan of salvation in a very mechanical way. I mean, that's a beginning, that's a start. But that is just the beginning of a long journey of learning how to make the gospel a part of our lives. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you this morning, do you think about the gospel as simply that which got you saved? Or do you think about the gospel as the fuel of your Christian life? My dear friends, let me encourage you to, to remind you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply a set of beliefs, a set of statements, formulas that we learn by heart. It is a story of God's redemption. And unless you're able to see any part of your life and every part of your life connected to that big story, when you have a chance to share the gospel, it will feel like broken up it will feel awkward. 
And I encourage you, ask the Lord to see how can you think of your life, how can you think of the gospel as that which connects everything of your life together. So that's how. The, how, the question how is simply perceive the needs of others and respond to them in light of the gospel. Now let me say very quickly and briefly why. Why do we need to do that? Because all our existence has been stained by sin. Everything. The, the great reformers called it total depravity. Everything in us, every situation, every thought pattern has been stained by sin. And therefore, number two, if the gospel is going to be good news, it has to be gospel for everything, not just for some things. Number three, why we need to respond and perceive to others in need of the gospel? Because you only know the gospel when you know how to apply it to any and every situation. You only really know the gospel when you know how to apply it in any and every situation. John Frame, one of the systematic theologians, professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, very well-known professor of, 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 of the Reformed tradition, said the following, teaching in the New Testament sense is the use of God's revelation to meet the spiritual needs of people to promote godliness and spiritual health. In other words, when we teach the Word of God, when we speak the Word of God, it's not simply about passing information to somebody else. It's about trying to let that truth connect to their lives and to connect it in such a way or for the purpose of promoting godliness and spiritual health. That is the teaching, the notion of teaching in the New Testament. And we saw this in Paul's ability in his speech in Athens. He was able to make the gospel and to present it in a different way than he presented it in any other places because he perceived their needs and responded to them in light of the gospel. Let me challenge you today. If you're here a believer, learn the language of the gospel. Seek to be fluent in it and try to see your entire life through this lens of the gospel. Now, if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, allow me to encourage you to consider the invitation that God is giving you today. He's been giving it to you ever since you were born. He gave you opportunity to, opportunities to hear about it. And you have heard it before but have never made it a point to respond to it in faith and repentance. Make today a day when you respond to him. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service if this if this is your decision, but the gospel is a great news that God is redeeming everything. He's restoring everything, and all of our lives are affected by that. My dear friends, I encourage you, as we think about being commissioned to the world, let's not just do it as a cookie-cutter task. It's not simply about being good Baptists who just go out and knock on doors and share the plan of salvation with people on cold turkey calls. Those things have their role. I don't, I'm not against them. But if that's all you think about evangelism, you have definitely a un, an unbiblical view. And today I'm challenging us as a congregation to realize that the gospel is the same in every circumstance. But the way to talk about it will be different. And the only way we will able to accomplish that is if we become gospel 
affluent people. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you open our eyes to the power of the gospel to restore us from every kind of sin and from every possible situation we might encounter. Lord, we pray that you enable us to perceive the needs of others around us, to be sensitive to those needs so that we might interact with them and that we might know how to respond to them in a way that addresses their circumstances in light of the gospel. Father, we thank you for the commission you have given us. We thank you for the invitation you have given us to join you in your journey, in your story of redeeming the world and of restoring our creation. Lord, we want to be faithful servants in that story. Now, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts individually. Let's spend a few moments in prayer before the Lord. sing and remind ourselves that in order to know the gospel, we have to start with Christ, our Lord and Savior, and, and begin and end every day laying everything down at the cross. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus, the greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus, and we cry, holy, 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 and we cry, holy, 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 and we cry, holy. Sing out to him, cry out to him. We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus and we
us on this Sunday morning at our public gathering of worship of Park Hills Baptist Church. We're delighted that you are with us. If you're a visitor, uh, we encourage you to take opportunity to uh, have lunch with different members in the church. And um, every Sunday we go out somewhere. Uh, expect to be invited to lunch. Uh, if you're not, come and talk to me. <laughs> but we do that with our visitors. So we look forward to a uh, visit with some of you over lunch. Encourage you to be back and worship with us as we seek to worship a God who is redeeming us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You have a wonderful, blessed, and blessed.